the foghorn means it is time for the Cavish Ships podcast, where we try and cut through the fog and the murk and shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervello. Coming up, a growing fleet of more than 100 unmanned surface vessels is expected to be fielded by mid-2023 in the U.S. Central Command operating area, according to the head of the Bahrain-based U.S. Fifth Fleet. We'll hear from Vice Admiral Brad Cooper on his plans to greatly expand the use of unmanned and manned vessels and integrate their data using artificial intelligence. Plus, a look at what naval forces can gain from some of the new weaponry and technology on display this past week at U.S. Army's huge trade show in Washington. But first, a look at some naval news this week. The U.S. 7th Fleet's Japan-based carrier USS Ronald Reagan arrived in Manila in mid-October for exercises with Philippine forces, and 7th Fleet amphibious ships Rushmore and New Orleans are at Subic Bay for amphibious exercises with Filipino Marines. Forces from Australia, Japan, France, and Britain also are taking part in the exercises, which range from warfighting and interoperability operations to humanitarian assistance and disaster relief training. A large NATO exercise, dubbed Vigilance Activity Neptune Strike, or NEST, began in the European theater on October 14th, with the largest naval force taking part with the USS George H.W. Bush Carrier Strike Group. Operational control of the strike group will be transferred from the U.S. Sixth Fleet to Strike Force NATO for the duration of the activity, which includes 18 other NATO nations in addition to the United States. The Kearsarge Amphibious Ready Group and the 22nd Marine Expeditionary Unit returned to their U.S. East Coast bases beginning October 11th. The group left the U.S. in March and unusually spent much of the deployment operating in and around the Baltic Sea, conducting multiple port visits to NATO members in the region. The concentration in the Baltic was a demonstration of U.S. resolve should Russia widen its war against Ukraine into the Baltic states or against new NATO members, Finland and Sweden. In the Persian Gulf, the U.S. and United Kingdom carried out a one-day exercise called Phantom Scope on October 7th to integrate manned and unmanned vessels with shore operators to create a maritime operations picture enhanced by artificial intelligence. Three sail drone explorer unmanned surface vessels operated with the U.S. destroyer Delbert D. Black U.S. Coast Guard Cutter Robert Goldman and British mine countermeasure ships Chittingfold and Bangor during the exercise. We'll hear more about similar operations in just a moment from the head of U.S. Fifth Fleet in the region. The British aircraft carrier HMS Prince of Wales entered dry dock October 13th at BA Systems in Resyth, Scotland for propeller shaft repairs, while sister ship HMS Queen Elizabeth returned to Portsmouth the same day after filling in for the Prince of Wales on a cruise to Norfolk and New York City. And that's a look at just some of this week's naval news. Now, this week, U.S. Fifth Fleet Commander Vice Admiral Brad Cooper met with members of the media on October 12th at the Pentagon to talk about maritime developments in the Central Command Operating Area, which includes the Persian Gulf, the Gulf of Oman and Aden, and the Red Sea. Cooper highlighted the dramatically increased use of unmanned surface vessels, USVs, in his operating area, in particular the Persian Gulf and the Red Sea. By mid-2023, he said, he would have available more than 100 USVs, about 20% of them U.S.-owned, 
and the other 80% owned by partner nations, such as Saudi Arabia. Here's some of what he had to say. We've seen great promise in taking new cutting-edge unmanned surface vessels and tying artificial intelligence with them as a means to enhance maritime security around the Arabian Gulf. So just to level bubbles, we've had these platforms out operating now for about a year. It's a little less than a year. November is when we started. And why? What's the, what's the, what's the so what of doing this in the first place? The simple answer is it's about 5,000 miles between, uh, as you go around the Suez, all the way around the Arabian Peninsula to the North Arabian Gulf. It's a, so the waters are vast and highly, highly, highly dynamic. Uh, there's no single Navy alone that can patrol that distance. We all know the criticality of the waters to the greater uh, flow of commerce throughout the region and how that connects into Europe, uh, in the Indo-Pacific and Africa. And so we think the best way to, to cover down on that and expand maritime domain awareness, I think you're maybe familiar with the term, but just to level bubbles, maritime domain awareness is simply our understanding of what happens on, above, and below the water. So to expand our maritime domain awareness, which increases deterrence and allows you to better position yourself to respond when something does happen, we believe it's a confluence of strengthening that partnership and then using unmanned sensors positioned throughout the theater in a meaningful way, nested with AI, because there are tens of thousands of vessels traveling around the Middle East. Humans just simply couldn't process that volume of information, but we can in AI. Moving forward, uh, next month we'll be expanding uh, both, uh, uh, particularly our capabilities of unmanned, both on the surface and in the air. Uh, and then our goal is that by the summer, at the end of the summer of 2023, we will have grown to a 100 USV fleet uh, throughout the Middle East. And I think an, a, a critical point of this is, I have to describe what that looks like. About 20% of that will be US, but 80% of it will be partners. So when I talk about partner-led, uh, it's the partners who will have their own systems in this regard. So this, it's a US leading the way. We've certainly modeled how this will work. I can talk about in details, uh, but it's the partners who themselves uh, are investing in the technology, and they all see the value of it. Here's a good example of how this works just in practical terms. So if there's a country, you, you, you could pick a country today in, in the Middle East, who can normally have visibility about 20 miles off their coast using their existing sensors and networks and everything else they have. You can just imagine an unmanned platform uh, that's, co that's connected via satellite, that has radars, that has cameras, that's out about another 10 or 20 miles uh, further into the water. So instead of seeing, being able to see 20 miles, now you can see 40. Put one more drone out there. Now you can see, instead of seeing 20 or 40 miles, you can see 60. You're, you're able to replicate the capability quickly. And here's where the AI comes into play. So these platforms set out there and they will map the pattern of life of what's happening around them. And then when there's something different in that pattern of life, it'll alert the platform, they'll begin to take pictures of it and send that back to a Navy command center where a human being then makes a decision on what to do about it. So that may sound fairly rudimentary, but if you're looking at this picture today in the Arabian Gulf, you know, there's about 8,000 ships that are underway doing something. There'd be no human being that could possibly pick out that, that movement that's outside the pattern of life. But what we've seen is AI can do it. It's pretty accurate. Uh, we've, we've, uh, 
we've been operating these platforms for about 25,000 hours now, so have a good sense of how they how to optimize their performance. And you kind of say, well, 25,000 hours. Um, what, what does that equate to? If you do the math, that's Monday to Friday, nine to five, for 12 years. It's a lot of experience and depth in how to use the platform. So I'll go back to what's in it for the partners? How, what's the value they see? It becomes really obvious when we begin to model this off their own coast and they can see it. Wow, for a very, for pennies on the dollar, we can put unmanned platforms out there. We can couple it with artificial intelligence. And now we can really get a sense of what's happening out there. And then, I think critically important, we can use our manned ships much more efficiently, much more effectively. So that's really the, the, that's, that's the power of the combination of uncrewed systems, or USVs in particular, uh, combined with artificial intelligence. Admiral Cooper also addressed recent Iranian moves to seize sail drone USVs in the Persian Gulf and in the Red Sea. He also described the two primary types of unmanned vessels being used by the US Navy in the region, the slow moving, long endurance sail drone and the very high speed devil rays. You know, let me just go with, you know, uh, Iran's attempted seizure of, of the respective drones. Obviously it was an attempt because we got them all back. Um, you know, it should be crystal clear, you know, that their actions were flagrant, they were deliberate, they were unwarranted. Uh, that they were certainly not the actions that we would expect uh, of a professional maritime force, and, and probably more specifically, they were a direct violation of international law. So that that should be very clearly understood. Uh, now, you know, and having said that, if you if you zoom out a little bit on our interactions with Iran, you know, over over periods of time, you see this sort of unsafe, unprofessional behavior. If I just looked at this year alone, we've you see every couple of months this type of behavior. Obviously, this was, this was somewhat unique. Um, so so with, with that as a framework, let me just kind of take the next bucket and talk about the drones that are out there. So as was described, there is no, uh, the drones that we have retain nothing of intrinsic uh, value on board. This is part of one of the beauties, this is one of the beauties of American technology. There is nothing classified that's, re that's retained on the platform. Uh, what is retained is minimal and it's all unclassified. So there's no intrinsic value to getting uh, these platforms. So you'll say, well, where's where the, where the information? Uh, we've we put in all the measures uh, necessary to store all the data on the cloud. So really these, these platforms simply serve as a, as a service, as a pass-through of information, which we're then able to take into our headquarters and into a, an area called The Rock Robotics Operations Center, where it comes in. And then, as you might appreciate, we combine that information with a lot of other information from different sources, and that's when it becomes classified. There are two types of generic you know, capabilities that we exercise in these drones. One is persistent maritime ISR. Um, you've seen them manifest in sail drones, meaning these platforms go out there and they have a set of eyes and they sit there and look, and they can stay out for a really long time. So we've had platforms out for more than 200 days. I mean, no fuel, no dates lost of maintenance, which is an extraordinarily long time. That's one version, persistent maritime ISR. The second version is, is fast response. So we have another version uh, that's been out there in the public space uh, called uh, Devil Ray. It's, a, it's the world's fastest USB. It's a 100-knot response. And you, what we found is you really need both. One, to sit out there and watch what's happening. Two, to give human operators an option to respond. A good scenario, a likely scenario would be, what if you're not sure of what the danger or risk is that you're going after? Well, I think it would make sense to send a fast response uh, platform rather than, than put humans in danger.
Cooper also pointed out that these USVs are not owned by the U.S. Navy. They are, in fact, contractor-owned, and they're contractor-operated. The construct, he said, is something called contractor-owned, contractor-operated Navy Oversight, or COCONO, or COCONO. This is uh, not an unknown sort of construct. It's similar uh, to what's being used for the Scan Eagle UAVs, which have been in use for many years on, on a quite a large number of programs, almost always operated by employees in that case of in situ. Changing topics entirely. This week, uh, the U.S. Army held its very large uh, trade show, AUSA, the Association of the U.S. Army Show, at the Washington Convention Center in downtown Washington, D.C. It is probably the largest um, arms trade show in the United States. It is a fantastic show. It's just chock full of people and stuff to look at. Uh, both of us were there. My uh, partner, Mr. Savello, spent two day, two entire days there. Yeah, two days. Uh, talked to a whole lot of folks. Chris, what was uh, what, what what did you pick up from the show this year? So let me just share a little bit of color, um, Chris. I'm new to AUSA. Um, I, I didn't go to AUSA when I was in uniform. Um, this is my third time since I've been out of uniform. Um, once before the pandemic, once um, when it was virtual, and then th this year. Um, as you said, I mean, it, it is immense. It's at the Washington Convention Center, two full convention floors. For those that are familiar with um, the Navy League show, imagine twice the, that size, may, maybe even two and a half times that size um, when you look at stuff. So there's, you know, all the things that you would expect to see at an Army trade show. There were tanks, there were helicopters, there were guns, there were bullets, there were there was battle rattle. I mean, all of the things that you would expect soldiers uh, to have. Um, before I get to kind of what I want to center my comments on, the other thing that's unique about the AUSA trade show is it turns into much more of a training environment than any of the Navy shows that I'm familiar with. Um, so, I mean, there is a robust show um, for soldiers um, in the area and soldiers come from all over, uh, not just the DC area, but they come from, you, you know, bases uh, down South. They, they come from all over the country. Um, and so it, it has more of a, of a training vibe. And so there's a real interaction between uh, soldiers and their leadership, which is interesting to note. What I paid particular attention to were those platforms um, or that stuff um, that really had multi-domain, multi-service utility, if you will, right? So there was a lot of missiles. Um, there were a lot of um, munition ideas. Um, and the contractors, I think, are a lot further ahead than DOD, at least publicly, um, are a lot further ahead than DOD in talking about how these munitions could be used by multiple services. They understand that we are behind. Um, not only are we behind um, sort of the U.S. vis-a-vis -vis China and, you know, what people have talked about in, in terms of what war games have told us about what the first, you know, three to five days and three to five weeks look like. But now stack on top of that, um, you know, the fact that the United States and many of our European allies have given munitions to the Ukrainians. So we're even further behind. So there's this, um, there was this real push on the part of contractors, in addition to traditional army platforms to push munitions. Um, and I, I mean, I thought it was great. I mean, I saw a lot of really cool things. I saw a lot of cool things that um, from a, a missile standpoint, or like I said, from a munition standpoint, 
um, or from UAVs and from counter UAV uh, platforms that could be used on ships, um, could be used uh, on land, could be could start on land and then be moved on ships. So um, I, I think that there's something there. I mean, you, you know, the, the folks, there, there are lots of folks that listen to our show that would say, duh, um, you, you know, this is what what we've been talking about in the think tank world. You know, folks like Brian Clark and Brian McGrath and others have been calling for this. But this for me was the first time that I really saw it at the trade show. Um, and, you know, it wasn't just the U.S. Um, primes and the U.S. Uh, companies. Um, Israel had a, a large booth. Um, there was integration between Israeli companies and some of the large U.S. primes. So um, the, I spent a good bit of day two kind of wandering around lo looking for that stuff. Um, there's a lot of small UAVs on the market, uh, you, you know, um, and they're also you know, the same technology could be used for unmanned surface and, and unmanned, um, you know, below surface. So it, it was really good to see. It was really good to hear the things that they're talking about. I would say that the one thing that is disappointing, um, but not surprising is you still don't hear a joint message from um, the, the army or any of the other services, right? I mean, the army was very much talking about what they can do in the fight. Um, not surprising. I mean, it's their show. They're going to want to talk about it, but there is still not a, hey, this is what the joint force needs. And here's how this piece will fit in with this part of the joint force. And then it'll switch to that part of the joint force. So I would have liked to have heard a little bit more of, of that. In fact, there were even a number of um you know, foreign uh, visitors that said, hey, you know, why don't we have a joint show? Um, this was on the heels of the um, the Atlantic Forum that was held uh, on board um, HMS Queen Elizabeth. And, you know, they lamented that, hey, that was maybe a little too Navy and this is too Army. You know, where's this joint discussion so that we could all benefit from? Um, so it was an exciting two days. Uh, if you haven't been to AUSA, I would encourage you to get out there uh, at some point and check it out or check out some of the virtual content that's online. I mean, it's it's eye-opening. Um, I will say that I, I think you're going to hear more from traditional navalists talk about munitions. I think the right. sense is, is that the window to grow the fleet the way that most navalists would like to have may be closing or may have closed as a result of um, really the you know slowness and unwillingness uh, of on the part of the Navy over the last four to five years to kind of pick up on that and run with it. Now folks are starting to realize that you know the Davidson window we're sort of on the back half of the Davidson window and now we need to focus on these munitions and these other systems that will make us ready for the fight. Should it happen in the next two to three years, you know, not somewhere over the, the horizon at five to 10. Right. No, you're absolutely right. And what you see, there are a lot of smaller munitions, smaller weapons, smaller systems, smaller sensors that can be adapted to small unmanned anything. Uh, the, 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 uh, the ground uh, element has been invested in, unmanned vehicles for many many years there's a plethora of them there always are and more you're seeing more and more dual use triple use uh small vehicles that have a rocket launcher on them and a gun and and other sensors 
they they're all they all can be integrated into systems. So a lot of those systems can be can be marinized and put into the marine environment. Not all of them can. It's not it, it, there are there are issues with operating in the in a maritime sea environment. Some systems don't do do, do better than others. But you are seeing uh, you know, there were a good bit of counter UAV counter UAV counter UAS um, systems. Um, and part of it was also, you know, there there were comments about you know a year ago, in in this world in the in the in the world of um, ground combat, which has been incredibly energized since 9/11 and the campaigns in Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, that the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan and pretty much said, well, that's it for the ground, but 20 some odd years of uh, major ground investment. And now, you know, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has changed, uh, changed that dynamic completely, a total 180. Um, that industry is, to say it's perked up is, a, is an understatement. Um, clearly, the, a lot of the material, most of the material being being uh, given to the Ukrainians is ground warfare oriented. Um, that a lot of it's coming from U.S. stocks, which are now depleted. Uh, there's a boon in there in the, in the defense industry. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, there's a, there's a dynamism about these shows. In terms of the joint things, the, the joint aspect, you know, all, all three of these shows, this, the Navy, the um, Sea Space, um, the Army show, the Air Force show, which was just two weeks ago, uh, these are all sponsored by their booster organizations, right? The Air, the Air Force and now Air Force and Space Association, the Army Association of the United States, and the Navy League. So they are their 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 booster shows are not really and, and then there's modern day Marine for that matter. Um, they are, you know, the 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 focus of the people who put those shows together is not in the joint world. It's on rah rah championing their service, but there is a market out there. You you would think there'd be um, some forum somewhere to do this sort of thing. And the fact that there are things at these shows as opposed to just you know, intellectual discussions and endless panels of people talking um, lends a different element to these things other than the, just the, the intellectual side of it. So that there isn't one out there, you're, you are correct. And nevertheless, it's a fantastic show. It's, it's the largest show like this in the US. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very impressive show. It's always ed certainly educational. All right. I'll hear this. I'll hear this. It's time for Squawk Box and Mr. Cavus squawks about the end of an era. Well, thanks, Chris. This week's squawk is really more of a lamentation. And I'm going to go on a little longer than usual. Sorry, folks. I recently found out that the wildly successful team that searched for and found an astounding number of the world's long lost shipwrecks, including the U.S. aircraft carriers Lexington, Wasp, and Hornet, the cruiser Indianapolis, the Japanese battleship Masashi, and many more, is no more. I'm talking about the incredibly talented folks aboard the research vessel Petrel, an operation created by the late Microsoft co-founder Paul Allen. Aside from an uncanny ability to find several dozen shipwrecks, the team employed some of the world's highest quality video technology to document their finds returning incredibly clear videos that took underwater wreck imaging to hitherto unimagined levels. The project was entirely self-funded by Allen, who was one of the world's richest people, spared little expense to give his team the best that money could buy. 
a couple of years ago, I had the opportunity to uh, write an in-depth magazine article on the operation and got to talk at some length with Rob Kraft, the Petrol's expedition director and lead researcher, Paul Meyer. Each man's personal journey to the top of the shipwreck hunting pyramid was unique. Kraft was an army combat medic turned commercial diver turned remotely operated submersible operator. Kraft was a commercial diver who got onto ROVs and became an expert on piloting and maintaining undersea craft. They weren't naval history people at all. They weren't even big ship people. The two of them brought a unique methodology to the art of wreck hunting. They paid little attention to previous attempts to search for ships. Rather, they returned to any original documentation they could find, logbooks, orders, weather reports, oceanography, anything, and built up a picture from there. The operation started as a pet project of Allen, who loved World War II ships and in particular had a fascination with the Japanese battleships Yamato and Musashi, the largest battleships ever built, and both sunk in the course of the last year of World War II. The location of the Yamato was well known, but the Musashi had eluded all searchers. In early 2015, the team led by Meyer and Kraft found the Musashi, and excited about their success, Allen and the group continued searching for shipwrecks, and the effort turned out in an unprecedented string of successful finds. The project contributed mightily to bringing these long-dead ships and their crews back alive for new generations. Video of the wrecks lent a human quality to them, a flight jacket stuffed into a hatchway on the Hornet, for example, where people were trying to get out as the ship was burning. Just last week, while at sea aboard the carrier Gerald R. Ford, I noticed an FA-18 Super Hornet from Strike Fighter Squadron 31, the Tomcatters. The aircraft sported the insignia of Felix the Cat holding a black bomb with the fuse lit. It is the same insignia that showed up crystal clear in 2018 in images the petrol crew produced from the wreck of the U.S. carrier Lexington, sunk in May 1942. There was the same Felix on the side of an F-4F Wildcat fighter, completely recognizable. That legacy I saw aboard the Ford is still out there, 10,000 feet down, more than 500 miles from the nearest land. The petrol crew sought no profit and was not particularly active in seeking recognition either. But one of the deals they made with the U.S. Navy in exchange for access to historical information about their ships was that they made all their material available to the Navy. No copyright, no restrictions, no charge. It's all been donated. Navy historians and experts also were able to routinely accompany the petrol crew on their expeditions, an experience that was far beyond what many of them ever expected to have. Sadly, Paul Allen died of cancer in October 2018, and for a time, the petrol operation carried on as a legacy to Allen's interests. Activities were curtailed somewhat during the, the pandemic, and now Allen's estate, I'm told, is being liquidated. Among those assets was the petrol herself, purchased by the U.S. Navy in September for the rock-bottom price of $12 million. Kraft told me the ship had been newly upgraded and all the gear was included in the sale. Although we've asked, the Navy has not said for what specific purpose they'll use the ship and her equipment. A few other groups have picked up the pace for deep water shipwreck searching, and many of them, those efforts approach the skill and quality of the petrol team. But Rob Kraft and Paul Meyer and the others on their team, backed by the deep pockets of Paul Allen, have made contributions to naval history that few will ever match. Thanks, folks. It certainly was fun while it lasted. That does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vago Baradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. 
Be sure to follow us at Cavus Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavus. Thanks for listening, and bye-bye. Hey.